welcome to another episode of Beck Lever Live. Today, I have a very important guest. I have a gentleman by the name of Joe Sullivan. Joe Sullivan is someone that has worked with some of the biggest companies in the world, Facebook, Airbnb, PayPal, the list goes on. But he's taken a break from working in the corporate world to lead the efforts of a non-for-profit called Ukraine Friends. He's risked his life several times to travel to this war zone and I'm very proud and very happy to have him here on the show and to speak with him about everything that's going on. Maybe he has some new information for us about what's going on overseas during this Russian and Ukrainian war. And I'm very proud to have him here with us today. So, Joe, thank you for coming in to the show today. Thank you so much for having me on. I got to know a little bit about you before I joined, and I think the type of awareness you bring to situations like what's going on in Ukraine right now is so important. I just got back from spending a couple of weeks in Ukraine, and one of the most striking things was the number of Americans who were there helping out. And it's because people like you remind us that as as a people, we have a moral imperative to help others. You know, Joe, <clears throat> as someone whose family was in conflict, you know, I was fortunate enough to be born here in the U.S., but my family does come from a former war zone, being the Republic of Kosovo, which at that time was a province under the former Yugoslavia. And we all know that that was one of the worst conflicts, I think, up until what's going on right now in Ukraine. It was one of the bloodiest conflicts in Europe since World War II. Uh, you know, first the Bosnian War, then the Croatian, and then eventually it spread to Kosovo after the Dayton Accords failed to bring Kosovo into the negotiations. During that time, Joe, I was a high school student. I lost quite a bit of family. I was very nerve-wracked to every day. And, you know, technology wasn't as fast as it is today, so it was harder to really get news and find out really what was going on on the ground. And I think that's one of the starking differences to me is to that we can see these things even, you know, besides news images, there is some connectivity more than back then. But you know, to get a phone call and find out that I lost 28 people that I loved, that taught me about my culture, that I used to visit every summer before the conflict started, they lost their lives in that war, and they were people that didn't want to fight. They were not looking for a war. They were pulled into a conflict, and they tried to survive as best as they could, and they lost their lives. Seeing the images of Ukraine and seeing the destruction and the tears and the pain, it's giving me flashbacks of what I went through as an Albanian-American. And it's bringing back some of that trauma that I experienced because I did experience. What people don't understand is that until you have someone you love in a conflict, you know, whether it's a loved one in the burning World Trade Center, I was in that building also. I was underneath it, actually. So to see these types of things happen, until it happens to you, you don't get it. And you don't understand how important it is to have people that do the type of stuff that you do with Ukraine friends and Rachel Ray helping out with you and just bringing awareness and getting supplies. My family had nothing. They lost everything during the Kosovo War. They lost their homes. They lost their lives. They didn't have clothes. They didn't have food. They didn't have anything. And people don't realize that even like a little piece of chocolate to a child and that type of a conflict can bring a moment of happiness that just for a second distracts that child from the trauma that they have just seen and experienced and brings back a moment of normalcy into their life. So I want to thank you for what you're doing because I personally understand why it's important. 
And I hope the people that listen today and see this understand. So please tell us how you got involved, why you do what you do, and why we need to help Ukraine friends. Sure. Oh, what you just said just resonated so deeply with me because I got involved really before the Russian full invasion took place last February, helping out on the cybersecurity side. So my background is in cybersecurity. So you usually don't have to go to where the conflict is in cybersecurity. You can sit at home behind your computer and you're kind of isolated from what's really going on in the, in the real world. But this job is different. And Ukraine friends, we focus on medical aid and whatever we can do to help kind of children and families. I understood the imperative of helping, but once I went to Ukraine, I just fundamentally see it differently now. I truly understand what you were talking about. I met a lot with government officials from Ukraine trying to figure out how could our nonprofit work well with the government and support the government in taking care of the people of the country. One of the things that I hadn't appreciated until I got there was governments have to operate with a kind of hierarchy of needs, just like we all do. And the hierarchy of needs, number one thing the Ukrainian government is focused on, and I mean every single official I spoke to in every department, is winning the war. And they have to bring every single piece of energy uh, towards that. Whatever their title or job is, they're thinking about the existential threat of their country being eliminated, so to speak. But at the same time, there's a full country full of normal people trying to live. When you go to Kyiv or Odessa or Lviv right now, you see the devastation of war. You see decimated buildings and things like that. But you also see right next to it, a grandmother taking their kid to the playground, a group of kids, teenagers trying to get together and make music. And you see people going, carrying bottles of water or giant jugs of water because they don't you know, have clean water coming to their houses. They're trying to live, but we forget this is a war zone, but it's also home to a lot of people who can't flee because there's nowhere for them to go. They don't have a, a relative somewhere else they could go stay with or the money or whatever it is, or that, or they just love their country and they're going to stay there. And so the role of nonprofits became so much more important to me once I got to see that. If the government is taking care of the first of the hierarchy of needs of trying to make sure that they have the resources to fight the war, the nonprofits play that next level role of coming in and helping. And that's that's where at Ukraine Friends, we do a lot of medical support, building out first aid kits. So for example, trains are very important in Ukraine, much more than, I mean, maybe in, in New York City, you think about trains as really important for the movement of people. Well, that's kind of the way trains are for the whole country. No airplanes can fly over that country. They'll get shot down. There's a curfew every night. So you can't really drive and it's a vast country. So the trains are the lifeblood, a movement of people. And we put the first aid kits on every train in the country because sometimes the trains get targeted. We give first aid kits to soldiers as they're getting sent to the front lines. And what we've imported over a hundred different ambulances to try and help in terms of medical relief. 
We also recently launched a new program because we realized there's millions of kids in that country who have to go to school and should not be a lost generation. We want them to be able to continue their education even though they're in a war zone. And so we've been importing laptops for kids to do remote learning. I went to one city, Mikolaev, and was talking to the head administrator, who's also their general, and he said, I have responsibility for 800,000 kids in remote learning. Can you imagine that? You're thinking about war tactics, but you also have 800,000 kids in remote learning. You know, For those of us who had kids here in the United States who went through remote learning with their kids, it's a tough, hard road, even when you have a really good computer and a nice internet connectivity and a nice home. It's isolating, it's hard to pay attention, and so on. And imagine if you're just doing it through one of your parents' cell phone or something. And it's very important to those children over there because they're losing crucial years in their life to their development. So not only are they dealing with the trauma and the PTSD of what comes along with being in the war zone, they're losing valuable time in their lives. And when this thing is finally over, God willing, as soon as possible with as least casualties as possible, they're going to have to get on with their lives. One other comparison is I remember that, you know, when that conflict ended in Kosovo, they were two, three years behind. They lost two, three years of their life, those children. And also, I think it's a nice way to keep them to having some type of normalcy in their lives, where if they're not focusing on that, all they're going to focus on is the negative that's going on there. And there's a lot of negative stuff going on. So I think it's really important to the mental health of the youth of Ukraine to help them get some type of normalcy within those conditions. So I think what you're doing is absolutely amazing what all of you are doing with Ukraine and friends. And it's clearly, you know, we want to support this as much as we can. Yeah, you said something about trying to give a sense of normalcy to the children. It is so critical. We don't want our kids to in any workplace in the world to wake up every morning and worry about getting through that day. We want them to be able to learn and grow, act like kids with other kids, play, expand their brains. When I was in Lviv, you mentioned Rachel Ray. Rachel Ray is someone who's been going to Ukraine almost since the war started. This was her fourth trip and I was joining her for the first time. And she has a particular focus on children in orphanages and she's been doing different things uh, on this trip she did a cooking show in an orphanage where she was teaching a bunch of kids how to cook they asked her uh, could you make some kind of american food for us so uh, they made a chili with cornbread and she actually was able to arrange for emerald lagasse to participate by Zoom to teach the kids how to make, you know, his, his special cornbread. And it was so fun to watch the kids just caught up in the moment, you know, with a bunch of ingredients, dumping them in pots and, you know, being silly and enjoying life. She kind of brings that joy to them. She also brought them a lot of equipment for the orphanage and, and gets people to donate to really help the orphanages there. You say it so nonchalantly, like, you know, we had to go to you know, the Ukraine. And I mean, you guys went to the front line. You, you've seen a war, a very dangerous war. You put your life on the line. Can you explain a little bit what it's like? I'm not saying give us details for logistic reasons, because I understand how that information can be 
critical and should be kept secret, but what was it like the first time you went in? I mean, you know you're going into a war zone. You know, Russia's a superpower. And you know there's a potential that you might lose your life. Have you come to terms with that? Did you come to terms? Did you think about that before you went in? And what is your family, your loved ones? I mean, paint us the picture, man. What is it like when you're about to go into a war zone with a superpower? At any moment, a massive bomb could drop. Give, give us a little bit of that information. We understand exactly, you know, not only you're the CEO, but you, you're going into the place. So it's not like, you're, you're like you said, you're not on the sidelines. You're, you're there, man. Yeah, it's an interesting thing to go through that process to volunteer to go. Last year, like I said, I was working on it from the distance, helping on cybersecurity, and I never had to think about that. I mean, I always, for years, because of my roles, have thought had to think about people trying to hack me, and I've had to deal with every version of that, but this is very different. When I started talking to the organization about taking on the role, I remember I was talking to my fiance, and she said, you should really do it. And I said, you understand that I will be going to Ukraine. And she's like, yeah, that's right. And so we talked it through. We agreed I wouldn't do anything stupid. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to, and didn't go to say, and, you know, stand next to the soldiers who were fighting on the front front line like that. I don't add any value that that would just be <laughs> making work and trouble for everybody. What I wanted to do, though, was if I'm going to take on this role, I need to go and make sure that if I ask somebody to donate money, I need to be able to see the impact and assure them that their money was well spent. I also wanted to make sure that if we're doing something, it's something that matters on the ground there. Just my experiences with nonprofits were that there's a big distance between the donation and the impact. And we, in a, we as an organization strive to be very different. We want to have donation impact and as little distance between the two as possible. That's just kind of the nature of, of the group. And also when you're doing nonprofit work in the context of a war, every day matters. And so I decided that I was going to go to Ukraine. I wasn't sure exactly where I would go. I did end up going to four different cities, then down to Odessa and Mykolaiv. So Odessa and Mykolaiv are a little closer to the direct conflict zones right now. Odessa is on the Black Sea and Mykolaiv is a bit to the east of there. So getting closer to the real conflict zone. I was in Odessa when Putin was in Crimea a month or so ago. So we were only a couple hundred miles away or something like that. As I got closer, I think in the last few days before I was getting on the trip, I started thinking about the question you were asking. You're going to a small country in a war with a superpower. Is that a good idea? And I just said to myself, this is important. And once I, I think I got, when I got to the Polish border, I went through a second phase of that because it becomes quite real when you're leaving the EU and going into Ukraine. And it's very intimidating. All the signs, everything. The, there's not a lot of English going on there. And so you have that kind of layer of feeling disconnected and uncertain in terms of where am I going? What am I doing? Who do I trust? How do I take care of myself? But to be honest, within a day or two of being in the country, the energy and the passion of the people there just made me stop thinking about that 
and excited to help them. I ran into someone yesterday at a conference here in California, and he had also been to Ukraine, and he said something to me. He said, in 48 hours, I fell in love with the people. And I totally agreed. I felt exactly the same way. You know, from a distance, we can we can look and see this is a group of people going through a really tragic situation. Up close, when you meet people and you see their energy and you're working side by side with them, their passion, their commitment to relearning their own history and culture, to reminding the world that they're relevant, that their kids need to be taken care of, and seeing those kids, all worry went away. You've gone exactly how many times again did you travel? So this, that was my first trip. I just spent two weeks there. Well, how many times have you actually gone so far? So that this was my first trip. I started as the CEO of, of the organization in January, did some fundraising, got to learn the organization, needed to go meet the team on the ground in Ukraine and Poland, and wanted to go talk to government officials and, and really make sure we were doing the right things to support them. Now you met with one of the like basically symbols of the resistance, right? Basically he's like the freaking Rambo of Ukraine from what I'm understanding. Is it true that you met with Vitaly Kim? I did. Can you tell us a little bit about who he is? Maybe to someone who's not familiar with what's going on over there. Like why is this guy such a big deal? It's like he's a, a mayor, a governor, and a military leader and a heroic symbol to the country who has a presence on social media, who is a very resilient human being. And, and I think someone who represents the Ukraine, we want to understand. There's this perception from the outside that, you know, maybe it was Russia that wants us to like think, oh, this is this little country with no culture of its own. That's a bunch of Nazis. That's the narrative we were hearing from Russia. And it's far from that. It's actually a very diverse set of people with different types of backgrounds who have a shared identity as Ukrainians. And Vitaly Kim is an example of that. He has more jobs than I could imagine. He's someone who I think became heroic because he, he was so close to the front lines where he lives and where he administers is from a city called Mykolaiv. The Russians got really close to the city, but didn't take it over and have been pushed back from there a little bit. There's a ton of devastation, but he's so positive, so energetic that he's the kind of person who keeps everybody going, keeps the fight going. One of the interesting stories, New York Times did a big article about this, that the legend is that Putin was so angry at Vitaly Kim that he sent a $20 million cruise missile directly at City Hall in Mykolaiv. And I think it came in on a Monday morning and over 30 of his staff died as a result. This was not a military facility. This was the administrative facility that's taken care of from the people. It's a giant municipal building with a big circle in the middle of it where a giant cruise missile went through it and took out, you know, a quarter of the building. And it's still standing there because obviously there's, there's no time to be rebuilding right now. And then we got to go meet with him, you know, a bit away from there. 
where he kind of administers from now. So anything that stood out to your trip over there, is there anything that really maybe keeps you up at night? Is there anything that, you know, I hate to ask this question, but is, did you see anything there that really just disturbs you, you know, that can happen and, and see these types of things? I, I saw a lot of that. So interestingly, while I was in Mykolaiv, it was probably the most devastated city that I'd experienced. You couldn't drive a block without seeing a building that had been knocked over. And I'm talking residential buildings and everything. And so after we were done with our government meetings, we there was just four of us traveling together. And we were just kind of slowly driving down the street, just taking it all in. And one of the guys with me is Jewish. And he said, whoa, is that a, it looks like a, a Jewish star on that building. And so we pulled over to the side because he, he wanted to take a picture to send to his family. And we got out and we were kind of standing in front of it and we realized it was a Jewish temple that had been hit with a missile. And we were just, you know, we were taking a couple of pictures of my friend. And then a woman came over and said, oh, do you want to come inside? And we got invited in and next thing you know, we're sitting down for a cup of tea with the rabbi and we're talking about that local community, just the people in the, you know, the three blocks around him that he's dedicated to taking care of at this time. And they had a little room in the back and he said, we have a lot of the kids from the neighborhood come here to, to kind of do stuff together. And I, and I mentioned earlier that we do a lot to try and get tech companies to donate laptops that are gently used after they lay off employees to get them over there to the kids. And so I actually had, a, I think, six or seven really nice laptops in the back of the van. And I said to the rabbi, do the kids need some computers? They would love some computers. And so I ran back out to the van and got half a dozen computers and brought them in and we donated them on the spot. Since then, the rabbi sent me several heartwarming pictures of kids using those laptops. And I had a, a similar, but a little bit more planned experience like that at a Catholic orphanage in Lviv with Rachel Ray, where I, on the spot, I went and grabbed another half dozen laptops and gave the, them to a group of 13 year olds that were trying to learn how to code on these ancient cheap laptops. And like, to me, so that that's what I think about when I wake up at night is those kids who don't have the support who are trying to come together, the adults who are there for the kids, the expressions of joy that I got to see on the kids' faces when they're like, what, you're, you're giving us a six-month-old MacBook Pro? You know, like, like in Silicon Valley, those laptops are a dime a dozen, so to speak. Everybody insists on using the best quality laptops to work in a tech company. But on the best of days, those kids have never seen anything like it. And it's really a good way to distract them. It really is. I mean, you put the headphones on, you know, they have connectivity, which from my understanding, I mean, we think, I guess, Musk a little bit for that, right? Is that why they still have like internet in Ukraine? Or what do you know about that? Because, you know, you would think in a war zone, how do you even have power, first of all? I mean, I know in the Kosovo war, there was no power. So how is it that some of these areas still have, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I don't know if you even have the answers, but like, you know, it, it, to me, it's it, fascinating that they even have a way to even get it on a computer or charge it or whatever it may be. 
I had better cell service everywhere in Ukraine than I have in Silicon Valley. It was incredible. There is a dedication in the community to keeping connectivity both physically and digitally. So I mentioned the importance of the train system. When the train tracks get hit, when the trains get hit, and they do hit them. I mean, there's not. Yeah. I mean, the first rule of war is you try to take out your enemy's infrastructure, right? So there's no way they're not getting hit. So there's an ongoing battle just to keep the infrastructure intact as much as possible. But how do you restore power when a power plant gets knocked out, for example, by a missile or a cruise missile? So like, that's the part I don't understand. I don't know. And again, I, I know you're not an expert in that. I don't think you are. But if you have any, you know, I'm just curious. I'm just asking. Well, we tend to forget that in the eyes, in the experience of the Ukrainians, this war has been going on since 2014. Russia invaded Crimea in 2014. We use this word annexation. So you know, everyone says, oh, Russia annexed Crimea in 2014. I like that word almost desensitizes us to what happened in 2014 and what happened has happened since 2014. In Kyiv, there's this main square with some buildings that are, you know, these this old monastery and a church that are, the church is a thousand years old. And there's a walkway that you can take um, that I walked along. It was heartbreaking. It's a, it has a big wall. And on the wall, month by month, it shows um, the faces of every soldier that's died um, since 2014 invasion started. And to me, it was an educational experience to walk there because I forget what month in 2014 it started, but you know, the first month, if you had to walk a long way, a lot of Ukrainian faces had already died. And then every month in 2014 and every month since 2014, young Ukrainian men have been dying, fighting in Crimea. And it's we think we we have this tendency to think that it was February of 2022 when Russia invaded, but it was kind of a never-ending war over on the edge by Crimea that became a full-scale war. So the Ukrainians have been thinking about and dealing with attacks on their infrastructure from like a hacking standpoint and disruption of business standpoint since 2014 and maybe even before that. There's a strategic resilience built into the way that, that people operate. And also there's an energy and a determination because there's another side to this war that we don't really think about. It is that information war. You know, we talk about concepts like fake news in the United States, and we have questions about what happened on social media in 2016 and did it impact our election? Well, over there, the Russians are using full scale information warfare to try and convince everybody that they're the benefactors coming in to help. And it's just a digital onslaught on every level that you don't really appreciate until you get over there. During, you know, and, and you're right, when you, when you really think about it, this thing really started almost 10 years ago. When they went into Crimea, that was an act of aggression against Ukraine. And at that time, I remember a lot of times on the articles I was reading, they were trying to justify what they did in Crimea by referencing Kosovo and saying, hey, you guys went into Serbia and you did this and you bombed them and that's why Kosovo is a country and, you know, we didn't really get involved in that conflict, so you guys should stay out of what we're doing in Ukraine. Well, first of all, 
you had Serbia, you had the breakup of a country that had five different ethnicities. You had basically what's called the genocide. Why it still hasn't been called that by the United Nations boggles my mind, especially when you look at things that like what happened in Srebrenica and Bosnia. You had 8,000 men and boys massacred within a week and under the guise of the whole world, right? And not yeah. to rehash all that, but they were trying to actually use Kosovo as justification for why they invaded Crimea. And I'll tell you what the difference is. The difference is you already had conflict there. You had an ongoing 20 years of human rights abuses. This is all documented, you know, and then the Albanians that lived there finally got fed up and they were trying to su succeed from Serbia, right? Very different. Right. Ukraine was already recognized by the world as a country. It already had its borders and it was invaded by Russia, where the Kosovo conflict was the ethnic Albanians were treated very poorly. They had autonomy under Yugoslavia, basically self-rule. They were stripped of that self-rule during the Milosevic years. And they eventually, they tried peaceably to get their rights back. They stayed out of the Bosnian war. They stayed out of the, you know, the conflict in Yugoslavia and the world left them on the sideline when they negotiated in Dayton, Ohio, two very different right. conflicts. And then you had massacres, you had over a million people made homeless, pushed out of the, so it was forced into that situation, but two very different situations. Ukraine was already recognized completely by the world. It had established borders and then it was invaded by Russia. Kosovo broke off what was left of Yugoslavia to get their freedom. And then NATO stepped in after atrocities occurred and over 1.3 or 4 million people were made homeless. They were literally pushed out of that province. So you really can't compare the two, you know, even from that perspective. So I didn't understand how they kept using that as a justification, but Crimea, when you brought that up, I figured I'd, I'd you know, bring that reference point up and try to set the record straight, you know, for the rest of the world. Yeah, I agree. The Russian propaganda definitely is pushing the narrative that Ukraine is basically like a suburb of Russia that should have been theirs all along. And so they're just correcting a geographical wrong to a certain extent. Hopefully that narrative is falling on deaf ears. I think there's one other thing that's different in terms of the way we as Americans are experiencing this war, and that is the proliferation of cameras and social media allows us to more directly experience the human side of it. When I think back to Kosovo and everything that happened there, it felt like as a passive observer, it felt like what I worry is starting to happen in the United States around the war in Ukraine, which is you fall back into coverage that's almost like a sports match you know it's like describing football teams you know one team has the advantage right now and the other's on the defensive and and then okay they you know the the line of scrimmage has moved 10 yards to the east and now it's back to the west every time i see the coverage in the mainstream media in the united states starting to fall into just focusing on the lines of the war and the tactics of which weapons each side is getting, I guess that's interesting, but it, it dehumanizes the incredible sorrow that's caused by every day that the war continues. I love and hate reading the coverage that talk, that brings us the human side, but that's the part that we can never for, forget is going on on a daily basis. Yeah. I feel like, you know, 
it, you know, wars are marathons. They don't end overnight. And I remember when this conflict started, you know, on this on the audio app Clubhouse, a very good friend of mine, legendary inventor Ikochi, he was hosting some of the biggest rooms on Clubhouse where thousands and thousands of people were tuning in, trying to get, you know, information. He actually, to my understanding, broke the record for audio, you know, like having that many people on an audio app in attendance and listening. After a couple of months, it kind of fizzles out. People's focus, you know, shifts and they forget what's going on. And like I said, until you have your own family, your own friends, people that you care about in harm's way, it's very easy to get sidetracked and to forget, you know, it's like people who walk past a homeless person in the street, you know, who are we to judge why that person is there? They need help, you know? And I've always felt like if I have a dollar, it's theirs. Like I've, I've, I've never said no. But this is something on a whole nother level. This is an entire people. They're in harm's way. People are dying every minute. We don't, we're not there. We don't see it because people don't put graphic images on television and that aspect on the daily news. And, you know, you got to remember the children. And what I like about your organization is that, you know, whether or not you agree with the conflict and whether we should be involved and whether, America, you know, leaving all the politics out of it, what's important for people to understand and why they should donate to Ukrainian friends and why I support and endorse you is that you are, you're going after the children, the families, you're trying to bring some normalcy, education. These things are really, really important. And, you know, I want people to go to your website, ukrainefriends.org. I have the website up here. There's a big red button on the right, shows you where you can donate. And like Joel has spoken, you know, there's not really much between them and getting these supplies to the people that actually need it. Rachel Ray is also directly involved with you, correct? That's right. We've supported her on her trips. I mentioned she's been to Ukraine four times since the main invasion started last February. And we're, you know, we're already working with her to plan her next trip. Yeah. I mean, I don't care if you're escorted by an army of a thousand soldiers. You know, when you're going into a war zone where bombs can drop from anywhere, I take my hat off to people like you, to people like Rachel. I think, you know, I've always been a big fan of hers. I think she's an amazing person, wonderful programming she's done throughout the years. You can't think of anything but class when you think of Rachel Ray. For her to put her life at risk, because there's no way you can't, I don't care if you're on the outskirts, if you're on the border with Poland, like you, they had that one jet go down or whatever it was right on the Polish border, if I'm not mistaken, or went over. So when you're anywhere near a war zone, you're in danger. I don't care if you're 50 miles, 100, 200 miles away from the front line. Missiles fly, my friend. They fly across the world. Russia also has hypersonic missiles. They can travel across the world in, in minutes. So I need people to understand that when you have people like you and like Rachel putting their lives, she's a celebrity, she's got a huge following. She doesn't have to put her life at risk, but she has. She's gone there four times. I can't tell you I would want to go there. I'm a six foot two, 320 pound man. You know, I'm Albanian in origin. We come from war, 2000 years of conflict, fighting for our own existence. And I can't tell you I'd go there, Joe, but you and her have, and I don't think people understand just how dangerous and how important the work you and her have done. And I do as someone who had family in conflict. I'd like to let you, you know, share anything else you think we should know and Thank you for, for coming on today. Well, thank you for all those kind words. 
I represent an organization that is passionate about helping the people of Ukraine during this time of conflict. We're optimistic that with the right support, we can keep that community thriving even in the middle of this war with those missiles going overhead. Like I said, you can hear the alarms going off in Kyiv and you'll still see the grandmother walking down the street bringing their grandkid to the playground because they have to live life. And they're going to keep getting up every day, living life. But with our support, it can be a little bit more joyful, even in the conflict. The more support they get, the stronger they will be. The families are the backbone, supporting the soldiers who are going to the front line, supporting the government people who are trying to keep you know, the lights on and the water flowing and, and all the things that are necessary for survival. We as an organization, we're passionate about supporting them. We're entrepreneurial. We're committed to if you give us a dollar, we're going to make sure it has an impact. We're very grateful that you've taken the time to have us on the air with you to share a little bit about our mission and our passion. Folks, you heard it here from the CEO of Ukraine Friends. That website is Ukraine Friends altogether. No spaces, no gaps, no hyphens. Ukrainefriends.org. Get on there now. Make a donation. Bring a smile to someone's face that's in the middle of a conflict. This guy's put his life on the line. Rachel Ray and a lot more people behind the scenes. We thank them for their efforts. We understand how important it is. And if you've ever been in a really bad situation, whether it's a loss of power, a storm, we've all experienced some adversity in our lives. Imagine if it was on a perpetual basis for months and years. Every little bit helps. And... Even if you don't agree with the politics of this, leaving that all aside, the people are suffering. Let's help them. Let's get online. Let's spread the word. Let's share this interview. And let's help our friends help Ukraine friends. Before we wrap up, I got a little surprise for you. Someone who wants to pop on the air. Hold on one sec. There you go. I hear you perfect. Now I can hear you perfect. <laughs> all right, so here's what I'm going to do. First and foremost, Rachel, when you come to New York... I come on May 1, May 1. You have to come to the rooftop, please. Oh, I, I will come any day. Please. We have the most beautiful rooftop in all of New York City. And we have a jazz night that is second, <laughs> second to none in the entire world. Well, I am married to a man who plays 11 different instruments, uh, which sounds so sexy to me every time I say that, but it's true. And I love being around uh, music. I've done uh, 13 years I did at South by Southwest, inviting bands on three stages from small to large. And uh, my best friends on the planet are all musicians. And I married a musician. He's also my lawyer. Thankfully for me, he's a licensed lawyer. <laughs> that's a dangerous so that's a, a bunch of money he saved me a bunch of money over the decades <laughs> that's a that's a dangerous musician right there <laughs> yes he's a lawyer and a musician he got into berkeley uh school of music but he didn't go he went to law school instead because his parents being italian americans they wanted him to have a real job quote unquote to fall back on so he went to actual law school a block and a half from where we live. Wow. <laughs> we, we've we never, 
gone very far uh, at all. Uh, yeah, John went to yeshiva. So he's kind of mostly Jewish, even though he's an Italian. <laughs> but he's, I gotta say, he's kind of mostly Jewish. The people that I work with in Ukraine, uh, half of our team is Jewish. And John is, he's half and half. He speaks uh, Yiddish as easily as he speaks English, and he sucks at Italian. So I think he's more Jewish than he is Italian, actually, at this point. Uh, I've studied Italian for like 15 years, and I'm still kind of, I understand it extremely well, but I'm so nervous to speak it because I, I hate being judged. Uh, by anything, very Catholic thing, right? And very Jewish thing, both. You, you you don't like being judged for what you do wrong, right, in life. So I'm very hesitant to speak in, in any language that's not English, my first language, but I understand about 90% of what's said around me with all my friends here. Uh, we have a home I work for for uh, 50 years here in Italy and I have a home in upstate New York and my mother is the first of 10 children from an Italian immigrant and my grandfather Emanuele Scuderi he was the primary influence in my life when I was a little girl he taught me everything I needed to know other than Tom Jones Tom Jones taught me how to be uh, a fan and how to wear a dress. The only person in the world I would wear a dress for. It was not school. It was not a priest. It was not church. It was only Tom Jones because I thought he could see me through the television. It's not <laughs> unusual to be loved yes, by anyone. to be loved by anyone. <laughs> My dad used to play Tom Jones all day in the car. He drove me crazy with that music. Something we have in common, Rachel. I also, my father was the youngest of 10 children. Came oh, to, yeah. Came to this country with absolutely nothing. And, and, and he became a chef first in a row. So basically, he started out as a prepper in a restaurant. And then he was uh -huh. like, I need to make more money. So he started watching the chef. He learned to do what the chef did. He went to the restaurant owner and said, I can do what he does. You can pay me less. And he got the chef fired and took his job. So that's all my. I think that that is a the exact story of my family. My mother worked in restaurants for more than 60 years and she would sleep in banquettes and in the dining room so she could receive more and more and more people. Whenever there was a bus tour coming through, she'd try and invite them. I've waited on, and my sister, Maria. Maria, come over here. We've waited on up to two buses of people at one time and we just say how many people want this how many people want that how how many coffees how many teas tell the truth mommy would fill the room and uh, uh, shut the door and, and shut the door uh, yeah and that was it we we are people of service and i think that's what um has made my life so beautiful when you're a person of service, that's what you are until you're dead. This is what you are. 
you listen and you try to deliver for the rest of your life. I think everyone should have to be of service at some point in their lives because it changes the rest of your life. You know you will always be able to be employed. You can always get some sort of job. I was a dish machine operator first and line cook and fill in the salad bar and work the line and everything, everything. When you are a person of service, everyone needs to eat. Everyone needs to feel that they're cared for. People that serve, people that play music, people that do things that are basic to humans feeling alive, we're always going to be okay. But the only way you can keep any job, and this is what is most essential in my upbringing, from my grandfather to my mother, the firstborn of 10, and my grandfather, one of 14, by the way, the four youngest came to America. The most important thing is that you have to be appreciative of what you're doing, appreciative of the job, appreciative of having a place in life that you can be grateful for. Work is a privilege. It is not a right. And that is one thing I just keep trying to message over and over and over again to young people. And it is the reason I return uh, to the Ukraine over and over and over again. These are people, I can't even say it without literally breaking up. These are people of every age that sacrifice everything their limbs to their lives to protect democracy itself for all of us for nato for america just democracy the concept of the right to say we are here we exist we can vote and be and be of ourselves this is the place I feel strongest in the world. I have worked since I was 12, since it was illegal for me to work. I have been in kitchens, cleaning shrimp or dishes or unloading trucks. I have worked all of my life. I am 53 years old. I never, I, I hate it when people ask me, do you feel scared when you're in Ukraine or when you are with these people? No. I go there on purpose to feel stronger. I feel the strongest when I am with people that feel the same way I feel. That if you are filled in your heart with the right thing and you can help people feel proud of what they did that day, that one day, and if you can help them be stronger tomorrow, then if you die today, then you died in the right way. I don't want to die among a, a neighbors that are fighting each other about stupid shit. Excuse my language, but it's just ridiculous. We should be fighting for bigger and better things. I feel that it's terrible that people are not 
continuing to recognize children that have no legs, grandmothers that hold guns that we don't want American children to have in their arms, okay? We have grandmothers trying to protect their own property or throwing cans of tomatoes at drones. Every man, of course, of every age is fighting. But when we look at these people and I sit with them and little girls that have no legs say to me, are my earrings in straight? Do you like my earrings? Are my paints bright enough? How, how, how can you not think of, do everything for, and sacrifice anything for these people? It, and let, let's not even get going on the president and the first lady of this country. Come on. I mean, unmatched. This is a guy who literally made a comedy show about being who he is in real life. And his wife is like central casting for the most gracious, most delicious, most delightful person on the planet. And, and you match them up with an American president who I've known as a vice president for many, many years. I worked with the Obama administration for a real long time on school food and improving uh, everything for American kids, the amount of time they could play or think or be with each other and one another. Walked so hard and that was all destroyed in the administration that followed, but Loved working with them and Secretary Vilsack. I just don't understand how anyone in America can of any party or any background cannot be behind these folks. These folks are not folky. They're not doing uh, chit chat at, at the town meeting. They're building Molotov cocktails, holding up arms, losing limbs, and dying for us, for all of us, for all of us, for people that believe in democracy, period, period, full stop, full stop. And I will go there. I've been four times. I'm going the fifth time in June. I will go there until I'm dead or we lose. I And I will feel only great every time I'm there. It is the place I feel strongest, smartest, and youngest on the planet Earth. And I will continue to do that because I want everyone to listen. And I want everyone to see what they are doing for us, for everyone, for the planet. And I give my money. I am doing the first time ever... Uh, a, a, a fundraising little dinner. I don't know if I have 12 cents, but everything I've spent there is my money that I earned with my life. And I will give till I'm dead. And I will be with these people until I'm dead. Period. And you have, no, you have nothing to do with Ukrainian ancestry. This is something just out of your heart. You feel for these people, correct? I can't watch this without doing it, we, everyone, I feel, 
And there are so many, as I said in the beginning, you know this, so many cultures of my friends and people that I know. I live sometimes in New York City. I live a lot in the country and I live sometimes here in Italy. When I'm in Italy, I'm with my friends that are Albanian. I have friends that are Armenian. All of my friends, many, many of my friends have suffered terribly, terribly losses, genocide, genocides. I, I can't just sit by and watch one in my own lifetime. I won't do it. I'm alive now, and this is what I can do while I'm here. This is the one that's going on this minute, and I will be there until I'm dead or we lose, but I don't think we're going to lose. I think we're going to win, and, I, and that's that. I want to be alive while I am present in this world, and I will do anything I can to help the people that are suffering at this time. I wish I could have been in Syria at certain points. I wish I could be many places, but I found a way through my dog's trainer. My dog's trainer, Elizabeth Lajeunez, her brother worked for a senator, Senator Fortman. Her brother said, call Henri Foute, who's in uh, the commands, he's the boss of the UCCA. I call Henri Foute, I talk to him, I say, I need to get to Ukraine. I need to help. What can I do? What can I buy? What can I give? How can I give? How can I be with them? I, I, I need to physically see them. I want to see their eyes. I want to give. I want to be there physically. Can you help me? Henri Foute said, give me a minute to think about it. He had to figure it all out. And we bought our first $100,000 of frontline kits for um, their built-in NATO standards, but they're uh, kits that allow not just tourniquets, but blood to flush to wherever you were shot. Whether it's an organ or your limb, it can help save the organ or the limb. There's 17 elements. I've packed them myself in warehouses, and we've bought hundreds of thousands of dollars of them now, many, many times. But the first thing I bought were the frontline save your limb or save your organ kit. The first time I went to the orphanage, San Bosco, we brought tons of toys, and it looked like... It was Christmas. It, it was the most beautiful Christmas I've ever seen. I think it was June or July. And I just burst into tears. The children were so happy. We just dumped out bag after bag after bag of toys and books and art supplies and treats. And the kids just went bananas. But then the father said, okay, it's too much with the toys and junk. Next time we need this. And next time we need this. So now... And we went to the hospitals, the children's hospital and the central hospital. Lviv is the central warehouse of every one or thing, animal to human that gets injured in Ukraine. Everyone, if they're lucky enough to live, goes to Lviv.
So the Lviv Children's Hospital is where I met the twins and the mother, the grandmother didn't survive that horrible missile attack that was one of the first big attacks on civilians. The little brother, again, a twin, so not a little brother, but the brother, he stayed to watch the luggage. Grandma, mom, and his sister went outside to look for the train. Looking for the train, the missiles dropped. Grandma was blown to bits. The mother lost a limb. The sister lost both legs. Both. No limbs. Gone. The brother has all of his limbs. The day I met them in the hospital, on my first trip, the little girl said, are my earrings in straight? And she was painting a picture and she said, I wish I had brighter colors. Grandma's dead. Mom's on the bed across from her. All three of them are in one room. The brother, he's intact and he's making a kind of a, a little electric thing someone has given him as a toy trying to make the electric connection on this board and he says you know what i really wish i had and he says the name of a lego thing that's very popular and the little uh girl his sister says i wish i had brighter colors i don't like my colors again she has no legs her mother has one leg and they're all three of them in the same room. We go out, we go to the other hospital, and then we go to town. Walking to the mayor's office, we're on our way to meet the mayor, Andri. All of my men are Andri's. Andri Fute, Andri is the father at the, uh, the orphanage, and Andri is the mayor. I have, it's like the sign of the cross, the father, the son, and the Holy Ghost or something. It's crazy. I have these three Andres, right? So on my way to see the, the third Andre, we pass by this store that looks like F.A.O. Schwartz, and I see exactly the uh, Lego thing he wants in the freaking window. Maybe I have to go to the so we go in and we buy the thing in the window, which is exactly the thing he asked for. And then I buy the biggest paint set with the largest number of paints in the world. And the mayor's office aide says, I'll get these back to the children because we have to go to the grown-up hospital next. And she's like, I promise you, I'll get them to them immediately. She takes them when we go in to meet the mayor. She takes them back to the children. The children send me a little video and they say, Rachel, everybody says they're going to do something for us. No one ever does. You sent us these and it's them sitting together. One of them in a wheelchair and the other one sitting on uh, uh, the lap. It's incredible. It, it, I, 
I've never cried so hard in my life. I will go there until I'm dead. These are the strongest, greatest people. When children best all of your life's work, I'm over 50 years old. When children can wipe out anything you think you've done that was worth anything in your life, screw you if you don't stay in that game and help them until you're gone, is my opinion. And that's why I go. Rachel, you know, as a first-generation Albanian-American, I was fortunate enough to be, you know, born in the U.S. And my family's from Kosovo, which was a former war zone. Oh, my gosh, of course. And in, in 1990, you know, 7 through basically 99, it was all out, you know. Slaughter. Every, every house was being, you know, completely burned to the ground. And if it wasn't Genocide. For, it was genocide. If it wasn't for NATO... And if it wasn't for the United States of America, now I personally lost over 28 people in my family in a single day. The youngest member in our family was only five years old. And what I want people to understand, it's not that I'm trying to compare the two, but if it was not for the intervention of the U.S. and NATO, I would have lost the rest of my family. And my This is why it's so important that this stays in the forefront of people's minds. We can't let this fall away, no matter what happens to the Congress or how messed up America can seem right now. We all have personal power. Every human being, especially Americans, have personal power. You can do anything you want to do, and you can change the world. You can change your own country, and you can change the destination of the planet. You have to just be of full heart and mind and educated. We undereducate ourselves now. We have a broken education public system right now. We need, if, if they're not teaching civics, teach it to your own children. Tell your kids how the government works and why it works in this way. Tell them about what's important to you globally uh, and and what you want to protect as 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 a nation if the if the system won't do it do it yourself just do it we all have the power to change the world every single day we are lucky enough to open our eyes it's a gift this is a privilege it is a privilege to help people that are defending democracy it is a privilege to have a job it is a privilege to open your eyes in a country like America. Treat it as such. Stop hating on each other. Stop it. You don't do that. You have a privilege. Be happy for it and accept it with joy and gratitude. Period. I, it just makes me, I'm sorry, but it just makes me so upset that people would take such a gift and not understand it come on guys we're better than this we can love each other it's been proven time and again after world war ii our greatest generation all of the women during world war ii part of the greatest generation all of us are capable of loving each other and understanding each other and at least being reasonable. 
of course we can fight, but let's fight reasonably and on sides that make sense. You have to start in a basic common reality. Let's at least agree on uh, the basics of civics and who is the president, who is not, who's running for president, and why are they running, and what do we like about that? Do you know what you like about that? Let's at least start with the conversation. It, let's at least start with a conversation. I believe in America. I believe in it because I am a product of it. Let's believe in each other again. Let's love each other again. And that's why I like going to places like Ukraine, because they understand that. They understand loving each other, believing in each other, and no matter what, they will fight until the death to protect democracy. Hey, if I'm going to die, I want to die among people that believe in democracy, period. I, because I was born in America, not Ukraine. I was born in America, but that's why I defend Ukraine, because I believe in democracy. And what people don't realize, you know, you know when I had my family in, in, the, in harm's way during that time period, you know, they lost everything. And the yeah. littlest things, you know, and I'm sure you, you witnessed this yourself because you've been there four times already, but even the littlest things, a pack of gum to a, gum. Kid, to a kid in a war zone, a, a candy, a chocolate, a, a pencil and a pad. Yes. Anything yes. you give these people, especially when they've lost everything, and I know because my family lost everything in that, in that conflict, and every little thing that came in was a godsend, so... What people need to understand why it's important to support you and Ukraine friends and to go to the website and to make a donation and to, you know, find other, you know, there's other organizations also and just get out there, send, you know. UCA, I, I work with Ukraine friends, of course, and Unbroken is the name of what Andri Demer, he's building this place. Since the war began is almost 10 years. Americans think it's one year. It's not. It's almost a decade. It's called Unbroken. Unbroken is what you can give to. And it's a whole, it's incredible. It's a central community that we're going to build out for every single person that's been destroyed by this war that has survived thus far, This has made it this far for PTSD, for women that are pregnant, for women that have just had babies, for children, for every single injured person in the country, they're gonna be centralized in this one community. And the project I'm working on right this minute is to raise enough money to build out a kitchen that serves 4,400 people a day, three times a day at the central center of Unbroken in Lviv incredible it's a central community that we're going to build out for every single person that's been destroyed by this war that has survived thus far this has made it this far for ptsd for women that are pregnant for women that have just had babies for children for every single injured person in the country they're going to be centralized 
in this one community. And the project I'm working on right this minute is to raise enough money to build out a kitchen that serves 4,400 people a day, three times a day at the central center of Unbroken in Lviv. That's where everybody is being sent. And we're working on unbroken, unbroken, unbroken. Honestly, whoever you give to, it's all going to go to a good place. If it's $5, if it's just your love, it, that's fine. But keep this on your mind and your lips. Tell your neighbors, talk to your friends, keep this in people's hearts and spirits. These people are trying to defend all of us. They love us all and they are sacrificing with their very limbs and lives to help us. So please keep them in your hearts and in your minds at the very least. If you just keep it alive in conversation, that's all I ask. Folks, you heard it here from Rachel, someone that's put her money literally where her mouth is. She's put her life on the line. She's gone into a very dangerous place to go because it's not like, like I said yesterday, you know, like I said earlier with uh, Mr. Sullivan, it's not like you're going to a place where it's like two smaller countries fighting. You're talking about a superpower, right? Russia's a superpower. At any moment, a, a massive bomb could drop. I mean, you could literally lose your life, and it doesn't matter what part of the country you're in. It does not matter. Their weapons hit any, any part of Ukraine. So I just want people to understand really what it is to do what you've done. And as someone that is the son of refugees, as someone who lost their family in conflict during the Kosovo War, I know what it means to do what you do. And I thank you on behalf of all of those around the world who have lost family, lost everything they've ever had, and because of something they had no control over. 99% of people want nothing to do with the war, and they understand later on in life that there really was no winners. And the hardest thing I had to overcome in my life was to not hate and not to blame. Exactly. It's so hard not to hate. And to not blame every Serbian for what happened during the Kosovo War. And today I'm proud to say I have Serbian friends, and we've learned how to come to the table and try to. And that's. So beautiful. I love that. I love stories like that. And it wasn't easy to do, Rachel. I'm not going to sit here and water it's it down. It's very hard. It's very hard. It's very hard. It's hard to hear you uh, be so kind uh, to someone like me. We don't sacrifice anything. It's the people that are there and literally fighting drones with cans of tomatoes. But, you know, that's that's the hero. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I, I am so warmed in my heart to be complimented by you. Thank you. It is so gracious. But it also makes me feel so ashamed because I know what the people that live there actually live through. I see it. You saw it with your own eyes. Rachel. I drive through it. I sit with it. I sit with it in the hospitals. I've seen Ivan, a boy with his neck blown off. He still had shrapnel in his back. And he had a piece of plastic because they had no prostheses. They don't have proper prostheses. They put a piece of plastic in his neck and sewed it up to try and help him. And he stood up and said, let's all take pictures together. And he was talking about doing jujitsu 
and being so brave and strong. I, I just can't, I can't explain what it's like. I, I wrote an op-ed about this. It was in, uh, I think it was USA Today printed it. But I tried to talk about the eyes of Ukrainian people. I just get lost in them. So many of them are ice blue. And I look into them and I feel like my soul just falls into this beautiful abyss of understanding of, of these particular guardians. Uh, I mean, they, they're so strong. These children, these grandmas, these mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, cousins, they're the strongest people I've ever known or seen. I will be a part of their lives as long as they allow me, and I will go as long as they need. And God willing, one day we'll be there together in a free Ukraine, an unoccupied Ukraine. I don't want to take too much more of your time, Rachel. I know how hard Slava it is. Ukraini. <laughs> Say it one more time. Slava Ukraini. And, and translate what that means to, to people that don't know what it means. Uh, glory to Ukraine. Glory to the Ukrainian people. On behalf of everyone, Rachel, we want to thank you, first of all, for everything that you do. You're someone I've always looked up to. I've enjoyed watching you throughout the years. And uh, <laughs> just, you know, when you said earlier about how, you know, when you become of service, you find a purpose in your life. And when I started doing my podcast, it was only for the purpose of trying to inspire people to never give up. And I love about it. I love that about you. Uh, I, I, I can't tell you how much this means to me. Thank you for spending time with me today. And I'm so proud that I have my friends here. Come on over, come on over. My Albanian friends with me today to be on your show with you. This is like the universal, the universal Albanian eagle. It's like how we say hello from far away. <laughs> the two-headed eagle. Yes, everything here is cute and good. I please that this is the person you Because Zarman, Zarman you have a very big heart, and she loves being a part of your life. I love them. <laughs> <laughs> that we got to know her. And what I was saying, Rachel, is that when you start to do these things, you know, amazing things happen in your life when you least expect it. Like, I didn't know that a week ago I'd get to talk to you. I've always been <laughs> meeting you and speaking. So, you know, you start doing these amazing things and amazing things happen in your life. It comes back in, in many ways. So I want to... And, and I have all my friends here with me right now. Uh, Again, thank you so much. I'm crying. I'm so happy. Everyone. It was such a Ukraine so great you. Ukrainefriends.org, Ukrainefriends.org, unbroken. <laughs> Look them up. Make sure you follow Rachel. We'll throw all her tags down here. And remember, no matter what you've been through, no matter how bad it is, no matter how hopeless it may seem, you can always make a comeback. This is Beck Lover with Rachel Ray reporting live. We love you. Thank you. And we'll see you next time. Beck Lover. Oh, 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 oh,